from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Daisy DeMelker. Daisy Louisa Hancorn Smith was born on June 1, 1886, making her a Gemini near Grahamstown, South Africa. And as we always do, let's see what was going on in the world at that time. In South Africa in 1886, it was a significant time in their history. The town of Johannesburg sprung from a camp where the main gold reef on the Witwatersrand was found. In fact, due to that, the Standard Bank of South Africa opened its first bank that same year. The railway lines opened and the first of three well-tank condensing locomotives were built and used by the Cape Copper Mining Company. They were the first steam locomotives in South Africa. Soon after this time, the Second Boer War began. This war was fought between the British Empire and the two Boer states, South African Republic and the Orange Free State. The Boers, being well-armed and ready for battle, struck first. The British brought in many, many soldiers and fought back, and they were able to seize control. The Union of South Africa was formed a few years later from the four colonies, including the Cape Colony, the Natal Colony, Transvaal Colony, and the Orange Colony, and all were under the dominion of the British Empire. So Daisy's parents were William and Fanny, and William Stringfellow Hancorn Smith was born in 1842 in Grahamstown, Eastern Cape, South Africa. He was a dairy farmer. Fanny Augusta Matilda Bird was born in 1853 on Ascension Island, St. Helena. Now, This isolated and volcanic island is quite literally in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, almost kind of halfway between South America and Africa. And it is a small island and is home to the Royal Air Force Station, which is a European Space Agency rocket tracking station, an Anglo-American Signals Intelligent Facility, and the BBC World Service Atlantic Relay Station. The settlement of the island actually began in 1815 by the Britons. 
It was an arid and treeless island with very little to no vegetation growing near the coastline. The people literally had to ration nearly every drop of water from a spring. But the people also began planting trees. So around the time of Fanny's birth, Daisy's mother, botanists were having ships sent to the island full of supplies in order to make the island a paradise. Now how her parents met, I actually couldn't find, but they got married and had a total of nine children and most of them only a year or two apart. So in order, their children were John, Gertrude, Alice, Frederick, Nina, our girl Daisy, Fanny, Ella, then Dorothy. So Daisy was one of the middle children and the family did live on a farm. So Grahamstown is about 550 or so miles north of Cape Town and it was very much a frontier town. You know, the typical African animals such as antelope, leopards, and lynx roamed around the valleys. The homesteads were whitewashed with metal roofs and most of the people were farmers. They spoke English and they also attended English churches. Now, Daisy was described as pretty, that she was kind and quite intelligent, and that she had blue eyes and dark, wavy hair. Her father's family were descendants of the first English people to actually settle in South Africa. The house they lived in had no hot running water or electricity, though they weren't considered particularly poor. And it has been said that she was a friendly child and her peers liked her. When she was eight years old, her father began talking about moving up north. William had heard that land was plentiful up there, though most migrated north due to the promise of gold. He bypassed that area and went straight up to Rhodesia. He had heard that they were just giving land away. He wanted to go and see whether he could make a better living up there in this quote new colony which is Zimbabwe today. So the decision was made and William took his two eldest sons with him and they left. William and the two boys wrote letters back home and they made it seem as though the area that they had moved to was a wonderland. So a few of the other families moved up that way as well. So when she was 10 years old, Daisy set off by train to go live with her father and her brothers on the new farm. This was a seven day trip with frequent stops to pick up or drop off other passengers as well as livestock. She would have had to pack her own food, pillow, blanket, this is how she would have had to travel back then. It is thought that she was sent there because her father and brothers needed a young lady around to keep up with, you know, the house chores, the cooking, and all the things the men in that family were not accustomed to doing. And at first Daisy was a little nervous about going, but she settled into life there easily. In 1899, when she was 13 years old, she was sent 
back down south to Cape Town to the rather elite seminary school, Good Hope, which was also one of the first schools built in South Africa in 1873. So seminaries, also sometimes called divinity schools, are institutions that provide advanced training for individuals who fully intend to enter the church or ministry related professions, you know, such as becoming a pastor and so on. The denominations can vary from place to place, and each one is a bit different in terms of the educational requirements, but they primarily focus on training students in a master's program, and some places offer classes such as Greek, Hebrew, systematic theology, pastoral counseling, and advanced biblical studies. And while attending school there, she would have worn a black and white uniform with black stockings and a white Panama hat. At 17 years old, she returned to her father's farm where Daisy met British Army Assistant Commissioner of Native Affairs, Bert Fuller. Now his division was responsible for the welfare and development of the black African rural population. They divided the area into districts and each district was controlled by a white uniformed district commissioner who employed a multiracial staff and security. Basically, Bert was responsible for the welfare of black Africans living on the tribal trust lands in the colony of his assigned area. Bert and Daisy fell in love quickly, it is reported. And to Daisy and her parents, Bert was a perfect mate. I mean, he made really good money. He lived in a beautiful home. He had servants. He would also get quite an enviable pension in his later years. He even had a vehicle, which was really something for, you know, back at that time. Now, Daisy had wanted to become a nurse, so she talked it over with Bert. And with Bert willing to wait for her, she headed south back to Cape Town to go to nursing school for three years. She did finally return north, having mostly finished nursing school, and she agreed to marry Bert. The wedding was to take place in October of 1907. However, not long after her return, Bert became ill with blackwater fever. So what is that? Blackwater fever is a less common, but also the most dangerous of complications arising from malaria, and it has a high mortality rate. The symptoms are rapid pulse, high fever, chills, and extreme lack of energy, exhaustion, rapidly developing anemia, and the person's urine will be black or dark red. The actual symptoms don't usually appear until a person has had at least four attacks of malaria and has been in an endemic area for about six months. Now, current treatments include anti-malarial drugs, whole blood transfusions, and tons of bed rest. And the mortality rate is still fairly high, and they did not have access to these things back then. So while Bert was sick, 
Daisy was constantly at his bedside, doing what she could to try to help him or at least make him more comfortable. But on the actual day that they were supposed to get married, Bert succumbed to his illness and died. Daisy was devastated. But he had made out a will where he had left her 100 pounds or about $122, which was a good amount of money back then. So that was Daisy's early life. And I must say, since there isn't a whole lot about her childhood out there, there really isn't a lot to go off of. I mean, it certainly doesn't sound like she was abused in any way. In her very young years, she was on a farm, born into a large family with a lot of siblings. But there are no stories of any deviant behavior. There's no stories of abuse or neglect. Her family wasn't considered poor. Um, there's just really nothing that would, in my opinion, lead her to her later crimes. I mean, she was sent north to live with her father and brothers, and I'm sure she wasn't thrilled to have to cook and clean for them, but her family was able to send her to a rather expensive seminary school, so it would seem they were fairly well off. I mean, she was also quite intelligent, obviously educated. I mean, there's nothing in the history about mental illness. I mean, there's just nothing. She met a man of high rank in her late teens that she intended to marry and all looked to be sunshine and rainbows for her future, for sure. But then he died. That would certainly be traumatic enough, but enough to go on to be a serial killer? Hmm, I don't know. So let's continue with her story. So, although she was completely heartbroken, she continued on to be a nurse. Now, at 22 years old, Daisy was an independent woman, very rare for those days. She continued her work as a nurse back down in Cape Town. Her fellow co-workers described her as being a good worker and a kind-hearted person. She had an excellent bedside manner and the patients spoke well of her. Then in March 1909, she met 36-year-old William Alfred Cowell, who was originally from the Isle of Man, which is an island between Ireland and England. He was a plumber by trade, and he made good money and was considered handsome, and they quickly married. They moved into a modest house, the toilet being outside, of course. Now, William had grown up on Isle of Man, eating mostly potatoes, boiled potatoes, and herring. The food in Johannesburg, or in that area, was mostly fatty meat and spicy stews, which is much heavier, and his stomach just couldn't take it. So he often had, quote, tummy issues, if you will. It is also said that he had back problems. I mean, being a plumber is hard work. Daisy was 23, 13 years his junior, but she was soon pregnant with twins that she gave birth to the next year, but they were premature and they soon died. I mean, they had nothing wrong with them, of course, they were just fragile from being born too soon. Then 
on June 11, 1911, she gave birth to a baby boy named Rhodes. Daisy was over the moon about her little boy. She then had another son she named Lester two years later when she was 27 years old. And then in 1915, she gave birth to yet another son, Eric. And life was going along fine until Lester was about four years old. He became sick and he passed away, dying from what they stated was an abscess on his liver, quote, unquote. Then just a few weeks later, her youngest, Eric, died, though from what was not recorded. But Daisy still had Rhodes, who was now 11 years old, and she, of course, spoiled him completely. Now, her husband had also become quite sickly, complaining that his stomach hurt constantly. The medicine the doctors gave him were of little help. He had surgery to correct some hemorrhoids and was also self-medicating with some kind of syrup the pharmacist had put together for him, but none of it worked to ease his stomach and intestinal pain. Daisy told acquaintances that she was worried about him, bragging that he was a good husband, a good provider, and he treated both her and their son very well. In 1923, her husband's stomach cramps had become unbearable, and he made an appointment to see a specialist on Friday. But by Thursday afternoon, he was entirely too weak to even get out of bed. He was throwing up. He was screaming in agony and rambling incoherently. And Daisy lovingly gave him medicine, but within hours, he was dead. After Daisy's husband's death, the doctor came to her home and refused to sign a death certificate. He instead ordered an autopsy, but no foul play was detected. So her husband was buried the very next day. Luckily, Daisy had made sure her husband's pension and life insurance had been set up to come to her, which, along with his pension, came out to be nearly 1,800 pounds. I mean, an incredible amount of money for those days. She would have been considered a widow of means. Still, Daisy went back to work in a hospital. Children's Memorial Hospital specifically, and she enjoyed her work. However, her son, now 12-year-old Rhodes, had become sickly, even developing epilepsy. He wasn't doing well in school, and Daisy made a show of blaming his teachers and even sent him to a private school, which was quite expensive. But unfortunately, he only made it one year there and was sent home. He had failed every exam. She tried another school, but with no success. So at 16 years old, she signed him up at a trade school to learn to become a plumber like his father. At this point, Daisy was 36 years old and she married another plumber by the name of Robert Sprout. He was from England originally, and he was not a big man by any means, and also seemed to have a hard time with the local foods. He liked to take vacations to England, and he liked to drink. 
and unfortunately he and Rhodes did not get along. One year later, nearly when Daisy and Robert were to share their first anniversary, Robert began to get very sick, having severe muscle spasms and writhing in agony after drinking a beer his wife had lovingly poured for him. The doctor said it was just indigestion, but he prescribed the man some medication which did nothing to help his pain. Soon after, Robert had collapsed again and a doctor was sent for who diagnosed him as having high blood pressure. This doctor told Robert that being a plumber meant he was messing with lead and that was causing his issue. I mean, his teeth were going bad rather quickly and he had to have a few of them pulled. His mouth would not stop bleeding, so he swished some mouthwash around in his mouth, he laid down in bed, and he passed out. The next day, Robert was screaming in agony that his stomach was spasming. A doctor came and gave him an injection to help him with the pain and left. Needless to say, it didn't help. Daisy telephoned Robert's brother to tell him that Robert was, quote, on his deathbed. Daisy then spoke with Robert about his will. Supposedly, after his brother arrived, Robert told him that he wanted to leave everything to Daisy, and his brother did help him draft a new will. Then, for a while, Robert began to feel a bit better, and he decided to take Daisy for a little afternoon drive, which was something that they really enjoyed doing together. When they returned home, Daisy happily poured her husband a beer, and it was indeed a hot summer day. Daisy had the doors and the windows open to create some ventilation and relief from the heat. Rhodes went to check on Robert and saw him lying on the couch, clearly in horrible pain. He yelled for his mother to come see. Daisy couldn't get Robert to even respond to her, so she called for the doctor, and the doctor and a neighbor helped Robert get into his pajamas and they put him in bed. The doctor told Daisy that he had suffered a stroke and that he would only live but a few more moments. Robert did die that day. The doctor wrote out the death certificate right then and there, stating that his death was related to his stroke. No autopsy was performed. Daisy was now a widow twice over, and when it was all said and done, Robert had left her a total of 4,174 pounds, again, a small fortune in those days. She took a small amount of the money and took a vacation to England, and she took her son Rhodes with her. He had failed his plumbing apprenticeship and was unemployed. The ship would take 12 days to get to England, and they toured the country for three months before returning back to Johannesburg. For two years, she lived rather comfortably, but she liked to spend and her money was running out. And of course, Rhodes was of no help. He just floated from job to job with a new excuse as to why he didn't work for whichever place anymore. Daisy was growing tired of Rhodes' drifting through life and they began to fight. 
loudly. But when he was working, she would bring him cookies to his job site, and even once, she brought him a last will and testament document for him to sign. In 1931, 45-year-old Daisy met and married yet another plumber, Sidney DeMilker, who was 47. Rhodes, Daisy's son, and Sidney's daughter, Eileen, were there. Both kids were 20 years old at this point, and it was no secret that they did not like each other. But Daisy was happy and told her friends that Sid was healthy and he was good to her. The next year, Daisy traveled a good distance to a chemist and bought arsenic under her last married name, stating that she had a sick cat. A week later, Rhodes drank some coffee that his mother had made for him to take to work. He shared his coffee with a co-worker. Both young men became violently ill, and although the co-worker began to feel well again, Rhodes was having a tough go of it. He was having severe stomach cramps, vomiting, diarrhea. Daisy explained that she was scared that his epilepsy was going to come back. The doctor said that he had malaria and prescribed medication. Daisy assured the doctor that she would nurse her son back to health, being a former nurse and all. Rhodes began complaining of a constant headache. He put his pajamas on and he put himself into bed one day. His skin was looking kind of yellow, Daisy noted. But Rhodes died a very slow and agonizing death three days later. His cause of death was ruled cerebral malaria. Daisy got Rhodes' life insurance policy that his father had left him that he would have gotten on his 21st birthday, which was coming up, and it was going to be 100 pounds. Now, interestingly enough, Robert's brother, Daisy's second husband's brother, had been suspicious of his brother's death and, after hearing about Rhodes' death, he decided to call the authorities. He stated the authorities should exhume the bodies of his brother, Rhodes, and Daisy's first husband because he believed all three had been poisoned. The authorities agreed. Rhodes was examined first and arsenic was found in his hair, his spine, and his intestines. They also found arsenic in the remains of her late husband's along with strychnine. There was little doubt that all three had been poisoned. A policeman knocked on Daisy DeMilker's door and asked her to come to the police station to answer some questions. When she agreed and left, the police searched her house. Once there, they told her that she was under arrest, charged with the murder of her first two husbands and her son, and they took her to a woman's jail. Word of her arrest and the news spread quickly. Rhodes's co-worker, who had been sick from drinking that coffee, heard about Daisy's arrest and went straight to the police to tell them what had happened. They took a hair sample, which did come up positive, for arsenic. 
The search of the house produced thermoses, one being the blue one that Rhodes's co-worker had drank coffee from, and it also tested positive for arsenic. So at her trial, she didn't fix up her hair, she didn't put any makeup on, but nonetheless, she thought of herself as quite the celebrity. But she was also convinced she would be found innocent and assured her dear husband, Sid, of that. The case was heard and on the day of her, and on the day of her sentencing, she was found guilty. Daisy DeMelker, at 46 years old, was convicted of murdering Rhodes, but not of her two husbands as it was deemed there was not enough evidence. She was hung to death on December 30th, 1932. So let's take a quick look at what arsenic in strychnine does to the human body. Strychnine is made from a plant found in Southern Asia, such as India, Sri Lanka, and even Australia. And according to the CDC, it is a white, odorless, bitter, crystalline powder that can be ingested through the mouth, lungs, or mixed with another substance and taken in. It is very strong and takes the tiniest amount to produce horrible symptoms. Believe it or not, it used to be put into pill form and given to people to treat certain ailments, but is now primarily used as a pesticide. Exposure to strychnine can cause agitation, anxiety, restlessness, very painful muscle spasms, fever, kidney and liver injury, arching of the neck and back that is uncontrollable, rigidity in the arms and legs, jaw clenching, muscle pain, difficulty breathing, dark urine, respiratory failure, and death. Now, arsenic is a naturally occurring metalloid in the Earth's crust. Very, very tiny amounts of it exist in every rock, in all of the air, the water, the soil. It can be ingested or inhaled. It is a carcinogen that is gray, silver, or white. It is odorless and it is tasteless and it is extremely dangerous. It is mainly used in agriculture, mining, and manufacturing. Exposure to arsenic can cause red or swollen skin. Warts or lesions might appear on the skin severe abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, abnormal heart rhythm, severe muscle cramps, tingling in the fingers and toes, darkening of the skin, perpetual sore throat, and intense intestinal discomfort, and of course, death. Now, serial killers that poison rather than, say, strangle, shoot, or stab don't want any part of having to get violent with their victim. And most of the time, poison is used by serial killers so that they can collect insurance money or some inheritance. They strongly believe that they'll never get caught because poisoning doesn't leave a lot of evidence, especially when it isn't suspicioned as a possibility. 
In Daisy's case, her first fiancé had died and he had left her quite a bit of wealth. And I think that this appealed to her greatly. Now, whether she contributed to his death, I'm not entirely convinced of that because he did have the exact symptoms for that fever. I think that money was her motive after the death of her fiancé. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can also visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring the podcast. It takes a lot of hours to put this stuff together, but I love it. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each one of you as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.